Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. That first time I got high, I felt like something really good was about to happen. And that was it, man. I started chasing that at any cost, right? I felt like I was going to be happy any minute. My guest today is named Lynn Walker. She is the author of Midnight Calling, a memoir of a drug smuggler's daughter. Welcome to the show, Lynn. Thanks for having me, Brett. This is really exciting. I'm Lynn Walker, and I'm here to talk about just my recovery journey and um, recently my new book that's been released, which is Midnight Calling, a memoir of a drug smuggler's daughter. True story. You want me to just chat a little bit about my background yeah i would love to i i just finished the book a couple weeks ago and there's a there's a lot of parallels in our story so i'm i'm so excited to have you on the show today and and get to discuss it more in detail so yeah if you wouldn't mind just sharing with the listeners a little bit about your background sure and thanks for reading it before the interview too i really appreciate that um yeah so i had this pretty idyllic childhood i i grew up in miami it was a small blue-collar suburb south of Miami. Dad was a highly successful undercover narcotics agent for what was then the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs. It's now DEA. And I was a happy-go-lucky kid of a cop. My mom stayed at home because kind of that's what moms did back then in the 70s. And she was a nurse, but she stayed at home. And we roamed, my brother and I roamed all around that suburb. Dad told us we just weren't allowed to cross Dixie Highway or Caribbean Boulevard and tell our mom where we were. And we were kind of free to roam. You know, my dad was really, he and I were really connected. He was very loving, protective father. And I felt really safe and loved. And then when I was eight, he uh, disappeared in the middle of the night and left a note for my mom in the mailbox. You know, that just sort of started my world to wobbling a bit. You know, I just, uh, I didn't know what the hell was going on. And I actually didn't find out until I was in high school. Um, what happened, and and uh, I found out when he went to prison, he got arrested with uh, twelve thousand pounds of marijuana, and went to federal prison down in Florida. I mean, you know, that's a lot of marijuana. <laughs> it's legal now, but twelve thousand pounds is never legal. That's a lot. I mean, you know, they flew it in a Convair four forty airplane and two cargo trucks, so big. So you know, by then, I I was already really filling the void he left in my life. Uh, with a pretty massive drug and alcohol habit of my own. It was really a, a perfect setup for connecting to him in the only way we had left when he got out of prison, and that was cocaine. So he met his big Colombian connection 
you know, big Colombian drug lord who was running the operation from prison, in prison, and got out and was um, smuggling while on parole. By then, it was all cocaine. And uh, he walked back into my life. I was 18, and he started dishing out his pure Colombian cocaine to me, launched my brother's coke-dealing career, and within a few years of abusing coke, I was trashed. I lost everything and everyone I cared about and really had to, you know, choose between uh, my dad and my life. Yeah, it, it's such a good story, too, and, and the book is so well-written. I it was one of those that was hard to put down. I just wanted to keep, I'd get to the end of a chapter and I was like, I got I got to read the next one. And there were moments when I was reading it, that I was like, there's no way that this is a real story. There were just so many elements to it. It felt like a movie. I mean, there's just so many things that have happened in your life that are just mind blowing to me just to think that those things can happen to people and you can be in those situations. Like it's, it's insane. And, I mean, it was just, it was, a, it was, it messed with my mind too. Just the, the swap from your dad being the undercover narcotics cop to then being a smuggler. Cause you know, my dad is retired now and you know, he was growing up, he was an undercover narcotics officer and, and just to like, even in my own shoes, like sitting here thinking about like, what if, what if the, the roles were reversed? What if my dad had done something, you know, similar to your dad? What if, you know, what if things had been different? And it was just crazy to think about all these different things and all these twists and turns in your story and and seeing the relationship with you and your dad throughout the book and you and your brother and just all the and just you know how cocaine is wrapped in that entire story and man it was it was so good and I'm ready for number two I'm ready for <laughs> the second one I, I'm really glad oh, I'm glad you liked it actually I'm writing so the next one is the story of my dad's life. Because that's what started all that, right? I really just, obviously, he and I were pretty estranged for years. And I just always wanted to know, what the hell happened? How did, and he was a serious cop. Like, he took a lot of pride in that role. Like, he was a former Marine Corps, you know. His dad was a minister. Grandpa was a very religious man. I wanted to find out his story. And this was, you know. A couple decades ago, and when he finally agreed to tell it to me, I was the same way you were, Brett. I was like, my jaw was open, like dropped to the floor. I'm like, because he remembered so much, you know, and he he just laid it all out there. And I think he was trying to kind of, um, you know, give me his legacy. It was my legacy, right? And and I think he was it was his way to kind of try to make amends. He, you know, he told me everything, and I thought. Oh, we had all these shared memories, things like from when I was little, I remembered cases he would talk about, I would remember things like that. But I figured he was lying about a lot of stuff because, well, you know, you know how an addict is lying, their lips are moving, you know, that thing. And so I went back home and I checked his, I got the court record and it was like verbatim exactly what he told me. And I, then I realized, wow, he's telling me the truth and he remembers that I got to write this down. So I had to quick learn how to write. <laughs> so. So anyways, that is the next story. And I hope to have it out this summer, my dad's story. Oh, wow. That's, that's soon. Yeah. I hope that's my plan. So, yeah, it's almost all done. So, yeah. I'm excited for that one as well. Cause I think that would be interesting to see that, that look at, at it from your dad's perspective. Yeah. And there was another parallel that you just shared there. My my grandfather was um, his, my dad's dad was also a minister. So there's like even more parallels in our wow in our stories. <laughs> that's that's uh, insane. Well, you is your dad is your dad still alive? 
Yes. You sh- okay, so you should ask him. I don't know how it was where he was in North, but in Miami, it wasn't that uncommon, actually, for these cops to end up on the other side because, I mean, my dad was making $15,000 a year, and he was busting these guys that were millionaires, right? And they're living that life. They're totally living the life of, of, of a drug dealer, and they know how to do it. You know, like he knew. He said that's what made him a really good drug smuggler. He knew where they could fly the plane in under the radar. He knew which farmer would take $50,000 to land the plane in the field. Like he was already living that life. And it's, I guess it wasn't that uncommon in the 80s once the cocaine, you know, was flooding into Miami. I, I guess there's estimates that 80% of those cops were, you know, on the book of drug lords. They were just taking money to, to not arrest them, you know. So it, it, it's a hard life, I think. And I think it's interesting, too, to, I don't know, being undercover and being a, having a young family, I think is really hard. You know, trying to live two lives and then, you know, come home and be a dad and a husband when you're a drug dealer on the street all day. Yeah. And, and yeah. And you, and you kind of touched on that at the end of the book when you were kind of teasing this next book that's coming out about just living those two different lives. And I feel like even, even though I don't have experience as an undercover police officer, I can still relate to that idea of, of living two different lives. And, and, you know, just with being a recovering addict, I can, I can understand what that feels like to try to try to be like the people that I'm around, you know, that, that mentality or that thing that we hear a lot about, like being a chameleon and just kind of trying to fit in wherever we're at, especially when we're using, but I can still do that today with, you know, seven and a half years. I can still find myself trying to act and, or, or act how I think people around me want me to act. You know, I can still, I still have some of those insecurities where I feel like I need to try to fit in or find that sense of belonging by being like the people I surround myself with. Yeah, I think that's always, I mean, that's part of being an addict because I got 27 years that I still do it, Brad. And, you know, I was going to say, too, I don't, I'm not saying I became an addict because my dad, like, you know, that, 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 that shift in my life when I was eight, you know, what it did is it made me start to feel like, I mean, it was probably anxiety, right? But what I thought of as a little eight-year-old was I just always felt like something really bad was going to happen. And, you know, I felt that way from the time dad left until I had my first high, which was pot. (laughs) And that was, those were like the two, that was like the major shift for me because that first time I got high, I felt like something really good was about to happen. And that was it, man. I started chasing that at any cost, right? I felt like I was going to be happy any minute. And I I believe that I was an addict. I probably inherited it from my dad, right? And I was an addict anyways, right? And so I want to make sure that message gets out there. I'm not saying, you know, because daddy left me, I became an addict. I was probably an addict anyways, and they would have gone down that path anyway. But, you know, by the time I found out what happened to him, you know, maybe a normal person might be like, shit, well, I'm not going to use drugs or I better not use drugs. You know, dad's in prison. But for me, I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm his daughter. I turned out just like him and he hasn't even been around. Like, and I kind of idealized that, you know, I'm not that he was in prison, but my dad was a drug smuggler and I didn't tell people because I felt like a little sort of secret, but 
it wasn't a it wasn't a deterrent for me <laughs> by any means. I was well into my drug abuse by then, well into it. So, you know, I had been in, you know, juvenile detention. Had been a runaway. You know, had all those awful things that happen to young girls when they're out there in the streets. You know, doing drugs. So things were pretty bad. Um, you know, by the time he got out of prison, I'd been awarded a court, and so you know, I was well into my own. Uh, drug abuse by then, and alcohol, anything, anything I get my hands on. And I've always been curious, you know, what what family, uh, uh, what what do you call it? Like, how much of a role it plays if your parents have also struggled with with substance use disorder. To my knowledge, I don't know that either one of my parents ever have. But it is interesting, though, just to to see the 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 path that you and and Ricky both took. You know, and you both ended up doing cocaine just like your dad did. And just all of you kind of went down the same path. Yeah, total family disease there. My mom was not. She, she's the reason why I made it out, right, really. So, yeah, it was definitely a family disease there for us. And, and I didn't even see it, really, because my dad never used in front of us ever. He never even drank at home. He was a big drinker, big. But I never knew that. He, he had a massive tolerance by the time he left us, but I, I never saw that. He did all his drinking on duty, you know, on duty as a cop. So, yeah, so it wasn't learned, that's for sure. I would say definitely inherited. The cocaine stuff with Dad was just really what brought me to my knees. I mean, I think we we were using together. Well, I got clean the first time right before my 21st birthday, and he shoved up in my life when I was 18, so it was about three years there, right, that we were getting loaded together, and it pretty much brought me to my knees. I thought free Coke would help, you know. <laughs> I wasn't going to have to buy it or sell my body for it or whatever. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm, it was he basically was providing me with unlimited, uncut Colombian cocaine, and it brought me to my knees really fast. And then my brother and I, dad never did. I mean, he tried once smoking it, but my brother and I were smoking it, right? So that's just so, it's just so uh, psychologically addicting. It's so intense. So that's pretty devastating too. Yeah. And I, I related a lot to, to that part of the book where you were, where you had put your stash up in the attic and then you were, had the police outside the the window and you thought they were there for you and, and then you're trying to get a hold of Ricky and, and like that whole, just like that paranoia. And I mean, I can relate to that so much of just like that insanity that we get to where, you know, we haven't slept in days and we think everybody's out to get us. And, yeah. and, you know, every, every shadow is a, is somebody, you know, hiding, trying to, trying to catch us or whatever. Like I could relate to that so much. And then you like crawling back up there for one more. <laughs> like I could relate to that. So, <laughs> so much. Tweaking and peeking. Right. <laughs> and then, yeah. Right. And like, but if I just kept snorting a line or drink a beer every hour or whatever, half an hour, everything's fine. You know, everything's fine. You know, just the disease, right. Of addiction is just mind boggling. And well, some people don't make it. Thank thank goodness I did, right? But a lot of people don't make it. So it's a serious, serious effing disease, that's for sure. I've watched many people drink and drug themselves to death over the years, so sadly. 
so I obviously I chose life, right? Obviously, I'm still here. So I, you know, I did uh, get into recovery at a very young age, like I was almost 21, but I didn't stay. I was in and out of recovery quite a bit. Some people say there's another book in there, a third book. They want to hear what happened to me after that book ends. And we won't do any spoilers about where it ends because hopefully people will read it. But, you know, some people want to hear that recovery journey because, like you said, Brad, it kind of doesn't, it's more of a using story, not so much a recovery story. And maybe there's another book in there about that. I don't know. I hadn't thought about it until people started saying, what happened to you? Right. So. I I feel like there's I feel like there's so many books that you could do just from that first one. I mean, you're working on the one with your dad's side of the story. I feel like your your mom could tell a pretty good story about what it's like to have an ex-husband and two children that get into drugs and what that was like. Uh I mean, Ricky's story. I mean, mm-hmm. there's just so many different there's so many different ways that you could could go with with other like offshoots from the first book and all the different people's perspectives on the stories and, and what happened with them. Yeah. I know I did talk with my brother about what, I, you know, I think his story would be an interesting perspective too. But my mom, I haven't even had my mom read the book. She lived that hell. She doesn't need to read about it. I mean, she knows about, she hasn't asked to read it and I'm not going to ask her to, because I think it's, I mean, you know, the whole thing is pretty scary when not only have your husband walk out on you like she really was blindsided by that, and then you have both kids almost die, you know, with some drug addiction. She doesn't want to read that shit again. She de- definitely has a story there. <laughs> so, for sure. So yeah, recovery's been a rocking journey for me. I like I said, I I was in and out. I do have 27 years of continuous recovery now, which is really a big deal for me. I um, I do stay pretty active in, in recovery community, very active in recovery community, and that's real key for me. I don't know about you, but my disease tells, this is how my disease works. My husband goes out of town or something like that, and I'm like, especially before I had kids, well, who would know? <laughs> who would know? Like, I'll just have one, you know? I'll just have one, and maybe get a little stoned or whatever, get a little loaded, and then, you know, clean up before he gets home. <laughs> Stuff like that. Uh, I have to think that one all the way through, right? Like, that's not how it works for me, right? Because I don't know about you, but for me, once I put that stuff in my body, I have no control over what happens and whether I'm going to have another one or, you know, where I'm going to go or what I'm going to do. So I I just have to remember that pretty regularly, that I'm it, my life is good now, you know, as a direct result of being in recovery. I have a really good life, but it could go, life can turn on a dime. And so I stay really close to the recovery community. And just need to remember that. Doesn't matter how many years I have but I, since my last drink or drug, I, I all I really have is today. And I really try to live that way. I work you know, work my recovery for the day just for today. And I love I love that message and, and I've had those same thoughts too when my wife's gone out of town of like, Oh yeah, I could have one and then I like I play that tape forward and like by the time she gets back, I'm going to like pawn half the stuff in the house. Like I'll probably be in jail. Yeah. Like everything is going to go downhill like so fast. Cause I know yeah. I, I, I just know where it goes. I know that once I start, I don't stop, you know, there's not, yeah. there's nothing that's going to stop me. Like I, 
it doesn't matter what it is until I end up in jail or, or I physically can't continue to use, like those are the only ways that I'm going to stop. And I know that it's yeah. not a good idea. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Got to think it all the way through. Right. <laughs> definitely. Definitely. So you, you mentioned you had 27 years. I would, I would love if you would share with us, what are some of the daily practices that you've adopted that have helped you get to 27 years, whether yeah. that be prayer, meditation, some kind of reading that you do every day? What are, what are some of those habits that you have in your life today? So um, I'm a very active in recovery community, 12 step meetings. I, I participate in those regularly um thank goodness those have adapted to the pandemic world and are you know have a lot of virtual opportunities there so i'm I'm really active in that i i work regularly with you know other women that are struggling with addiction and and alcoholism you know just helping others being of service to others i you know i do very much have a spiritual life, right? I do a lot of prayer meditation, but I don't have a clue what the hell I'm praying to. I just do it because that's what I thought. And I, I I get that now. Like I used to have this whole intellectual thing about it, you know, you know, having been raised in a very religious family, you know, and then obviously my dad took us down a different path. But um I I do believe in just sort of trying to shut my mind up and so just trying to quiet my mind and and be open maybe to other outcomes that might be happening when I'm struggling other than what my brain is telling me because my brain doesn't always have good ideas even still I mean I'm I'm functioning I'm highly functioning but still sometimes just a little pause and I, I think of that as meditation right just to pause and breathe a little and think okay you know, what have I learned in my 27 years of recovery that could help me in this situation instead of maybe what my first instinct is? So I do very much believe in that. I mean, I'm not sitting on the couch in the Zen position or whatever by any means, but I do try to still my mind and, and give some pause before I react to things. And um, yeah, uh, you know, and I just don't pick up on a daily basis. And if I feel like I pick up a drink or drug, and if I think about it, I just, I cop to it, right? I just tell people, you know, I open up at a meeting or I open up to someone I trust to just say, hey, I'm thinking about using or I'm fantasizing about it or, um, or you know, and that doesn't happen often now, but it does still come into my mind. But what happens more often than that is I get not okay. Like I'm just not okay with either the person I'm being or the wife I'm being or God, the mother I'm being. And motherhood is just all about guilt and let it go I don't know but if I just start to feel like shit about myself that's a dangerous place for me right because I know how to make myself feel better really quick right with a drink or drug and so when I'm not feeling okay that's when I really need to take some action right and that usually involves reaching out to someone else who's also in recovery that's that's my thing you know when I'm in a pickle I you know or I'm in a really bad place I I mean, I might pray, but that's just not really worked for me. I just always needed that connection with another recovering alcoholic or drug addict for me. Like, I just need to hear someone else say it's going to be okay and then just get real with someone. So that, that, that connection. And I think that's because that was part of my disease of addiction was so isolating. I was just so isolated emotionally and physically. So connecting with other people is just critical for me. Because I, I can't, I just can't hide anymore. If I start hiding, I'm in trouble. 
I love I love that you brought that up and and talking about you know just telling on yourself when when those thoughts arise you know and and it's it's crazy to me just from going to meetings how often I meet especially newcomers that don't feel comfortable talking about I had the thought of using or I had the desire to use and it's like of course you did like that's all like that's all we know you know I used for years and years and years so why 30 days in do I think I'm magically not going to think about it anymore that was what my entire life revolved around for years so of course I'm going to think about it but the important part is telling on ourselves you know i have this thought like you mentioned having those phone numbers making those connections building that community and having that support and and when those when those struggles when those difficulties come up which they're going to because you know we're still alive so we're still going to have those struggles we have those people that we can reach out to and it's so helpful to have other people that are in recovery, other addicts, other alcoholics to have their phone numbers because they get it. You know, I have a whole list of people on my phone that I can call and be like, you know, my day is not going good. Here's all the stuff. Here's all this negative stuff that I'm thinking about. You know, I'm not in a good spot. I'm thinking about picking up and, and they get it. You know, if I, if I called, if I called my mom or somebody that, that isn't in recovery and said that they'd probably freak out. But if I call somebody in the program, they're like, well, of course right. you feel that way. That makes exactly. total sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, things that normal, normal people, people who don't have the disease of addiction or what, whether you believe it's a disease or not, don't have addiction history or drug and alcohol abuse history or whatever addiction, I guess. Don't, it's not dangerous for them if they feel like shit about themselves in a, on any given day, right? It, they just, whatever, they cope with it. They, they know that it's going to get better or something. But I think for drug addicts and alcoholics, we, we can just spiral, right? And then, then we're using it again, you know? So, I mean, what could seem like silly, like somebody might feel silly to call and say, you know, whatever, my dog died or whatever they feel bad about. But, but if you think that all the way through, kind of like thinking a drink all the way through, that, you know, things like that, if you're not getting real about it or processing it or letting someone in, can take us back. You know, I've heard people go back for nothing. You think, what? You know, but you, that's what happens because that's what we do. We, that's our solution to everything. If life is good, drinking and drugging will make it better. If life sucks, drinking and drugging will make it better. If life is boring, you know, it's like our solution to everything, right? Just everything. Dog dies, you know, whatever. Bad day at work, whatever. You know, you got a headache, drink or drug. <laughs> so, yeah. So, and you know, the other thing I always like to remember too is I, I really do believe that I am completely powerless over, um, drugs and alcohol, and I, I definitely know how bad my life got when I was using, but I just have to remember I'm still powerless over that shit, right? Just because my life is good now, and if if you're, you know, an addict or an alcoholic and you get clean and sober, your life's going to get better. It's, that's what happens, right? But then that's what happened to me once before. Life got really good, and then I thought I had my shit together, right? And I ended up picking up again. Um, so I just have to always remind myself, no matter what, right, no matter what, I am still powerless over that stuff. But 27 years or whatever, all I all I really have is today. And I have to do those things I know work for me. 
That's a, that's a great message and a great reminder. And, you know, I, I too kind of, I, obviously I don't have 27 years cause I, I'm not old enough to have 27 <laughs> years. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 30. So it'd be hard for me to have 27 hey, are you years. Calling me old, um, <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm not, I'm, I'm not calling you old. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, was even with, with seven years, I still, it's a, I just love that you're bringing up that, that trap that a lot of us fall into, you know, with seven years, I sometimes have that thought of like, do I really need to go to this meeting? Like, you know, I have all the, I have all the, the readings memorized and I know, you know, I have all these things that just from going to meetings so much where I'm like, I already know what's going to happen at the meeting. Do I really need to go? I'm tired. I'm this, I'm that like, you know, making up these excuses in my head of why I don't need to go. But, but like you said, it's it's a it's a daily reprieve and i have to remind myself of that because i've seen people that have more time than i have go back out and i haven't seen them come back and that scares me because i don't i don't want to be one of those people and i don't i don't want to risk i don't want to risk going back out i don't know which part of the program is working and i don't want to take that risk of trying to cut out parts of the program and try to you know do that experiment of like which part is it that's working like is it sponsorship like do i want to cut that out do i want to cut out me like i don't want to mess with any of it because it's working i'm the same way i'm the same way and i i have found that getting away from recovery meetings makes me want to go left like, you know, the more I go, the more I want to go. And when I start dialing it back, the less I want to go. So I just have a standard, you know, kind of, I go to, try to go at least three a week. Cause that's just works for me, right? It always has. And I, I love those people. I want to be there. So those are, that's my tribe, man. People in recovery, right? I mean, I have lots of friends that aren't in recovery, too. Well, not a lot, because I don't connect easily. But, you know, I have some close friends that aren't in recovery. But um, I'm at most, I'm at, at most at home with fellow alcohol. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Most, most of the people that I spend time with aside from coworkers or people yeah. in recovery. So yeah. I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get it. Awesome. Well, Lynn, we're getting towards the end of the time. Um, I would love for you to share with the listeners if they're interested in the book, where can they find it? I know you had mentioned that the audio book that you've been working on that, is that available now or is that coming soon? Totally out. So you can buy Midnight Calling and Memoir of a Drug Smuggler's Daughter anywhere books are sold. I've gone wide with it. I mean, it's on Amazon, but you could also get it at whatever, barnesandnobles.com. You can get it if you get your local bookstore to order it. They would, they can even order it for you, even if they're not carrying it, if you want print paperback. The audiobook is just on Audible. It just came out. And actually, I'm giving away free promo codes. I'd love to give them to people in recovery, but anybody really, I can give out free codes if you just go to my website, which is lynnwalkermemoir.com, um, and just, you know, click the sign up thing. I'll send you a free promo code. It's got like 25 to give away in the U.S. and 25 in the U.K. or whatever. So, yeah, love to have people listen to it and get feedback. And I, the narrator did a great job. I didn't narrate it. I don't know how to act, but she did an awesome job. So, yeah. Yeah, so go for it. And then I think my next book should be out this summer is what I'm shooting for, late summer. I Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one as well. Just after finishing the first one, to, to hear the other perspective of it, I, I can't wait for it. Yeah, and I think it's a different audience, too. Like, your dad would probably like to listen mm. to my dad's book, right? He probably doesn't want to listen to mine because, you know, a kid's an addiction. But And, yeah, I really I appreciate the opportunity 
to connect. I, I love, this is the thing I love about social media is I never knew about, you know, recovery survey podcast. I just stumbled on it on Twitter, I think. So I'm just really excited. I found that I love it. Oh, I'm glad that we were able to connect and I really do appreciate you coming on. And, and I'm sure, uh, I'm sure when this episode airs here in a couple of weeks, I'm going to get a text from my dad because he usually listens to my episodes and <laughs> he's going to ask a little bit more. Hi. <laughs> Hi, Brett's dad. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks for doing this. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for coming on. I really do appreciate it. Yeah. And thanks for doing the podcast because you never know how, you know, how, what, how people hear the message, right? Absolutely. So, thanks for doing that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's really important. Lynn, thank you again for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. And I had a great time talking with you. Guys, I would encourage you to pick up a copy of Midnight Calling, a memoir of a drug smuggler's daughter. It is an excellent book, and I just cannot recommend it enough. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.